To have passion in life is everything. What's your Everest? Oh, is it yeah. that 200 inch box? They just look so impressive when they're wide. Especially running away. <laughs> Welcome to this week's episode of Eastman's Elevated. It's like a think tank for outdoor activity. Sounds exactly like my hunting. Just always thinking about it, always trying to evolve it and make it better. Here's your host, Brian Barney. Hey, what's happening, guys? Happy New Year. Got a brand new Eastman's Elevated for you. So today on the podcast, I have back on Michael Alba. Michael came on the podcast. He absolutely killed it his first time on. I really enjoyed the conversation, so I invited him back. And, and Michael's a diehard bow hunter. He's consistently successful, and, and and he just has great insight into what it takes to, to do these do-it-yourself adventures. Uh, he travels to multiple different states, hunts multiple different species, and so it, it made for a great engaging podcast. Uh, we talk a lot about figuring out units and locating animals and trying to dial that in. Uh, we talk about mule deer a lot. We also talk about elk hunting and antelope. We talk about these stocks and the nuances of the stock and making the right moves, how it can dictate getting the shot or not getting the shot. We also talk over some of his hunts from last season. Uh, we And then we also um, well, we get into uh, blood trailing a little bit and tell some great stories. It's just a great podcast. I really enjoyed it, and I think you guys are going to enjoy it too. I want to thank my sponsors for today's show. I want to thank Everly Stock Packs. I've been using Everly Stock for the last handful of years, and they build a durable pack that packs the weight really well, and, and they have a multitude of different models to fit every different preference or use you can come up with. I uh, really like their kite pack for a day pack because it's super lightweight, uh, compresses really tight to your back, and you can hunt with it on. Also burly enough to be able to pack out an animal if you do harvest one. Uh, also use their little big top, use their destroyer. Their destroyer is a great uh, extended hunt, expedition hunt pack. So I use that one like five to 10 days and they came out with a new pack series called their vapor series. Uh, I used it this season. It, it goes on the mainframe, uh, which is a great packing system and it's got three different bag styles. They're a minimalist bag style, so it doesn't have a bunch of extra pockets, but it's got enough to be able to organize your gear. Uh, it comes in a 2500, a 5000 and a 7500 cubic inch pack that you can connect to this mainframe. Uh, they pack the weight really well, uh, lightweight design. Uh, they have a meat shelf where you can fit the meat in between the frame and the bag. Um, just a great pack, and I, I loved using them this season and would recommend them to anybody out there. So uh, if you're in the market for a new pack, make sure to check out Everly Stock. I also want to thank Matthews. Uh, Matthews came out with a new bow this year. It's the V3X. Uh, this thing is just an absolute shooter. Uh, I've been dialing this thing in. It'll be my bow for 2022. And um, it, it just uh, tunes really easy, holds a tune, super forgiving. Um, man, I, I can't believe how well this, this bow aims and holds. And, and every year I'm so impressed by these engineers, uh, this research and development team that's able to come up with these bow designs and improve upon last year's model because... I've loved Matthews for the last five years, and every year they seem to outdo themselves and come up with a better model. But uh, if you're in the market for one, they, they build two different sizes. I actually went with the shorter axle-to-axle this year. I went with the 29-inch. Uh, just saw that I was going to get more performance out of it uh, for my draw length, and um, I haven't been disappointed. It's been a great shooter. Uh, so if you're in the market for a new bow, make sure to check out Matthews. 
And with that, uh, make sure to check out everything we've got going on at Eastman's. Uh, we've got the magazines, Eastman's Bow Hunting Journal, Eastman's Hunting Journal. Uh, I've got an article coming up in the Bow Hunting Journal. Um, I was trying to think what it was. My mind went blank there for a second. But I've got, uh, it, it's all about uh, off-season improvement. Um, so a great one. Also going to sit down and do a solo podcast on that as well. It's just been busy here. So I'll make sure to get that out to you guys and um, get that recorded. But yeah, it's a great article. Uh, we pour our heart and soul into these articles. Eastman's Bow Hunting Journal, Eastman's Hunting Journal. Uh, great staff writers. I love reading Dan Picard's stuff as he's a diehard bow hunter. And uh, love re reading the uh, subscriber stories as well. Um, so you can check that out. We also have the MRS section, which is a members research section, uh, which helps you learn all these Western states and when the draws come up and how they work. Uh, also draw success rates. There's so much information in it. So, uh, I've got a promo code elevated three, two, one. We'll get you both magazines and an outdoor edge knife for $50. Uh, the other place that we have all that da data compiled is in our Eastman's tag hub. So uh, it's an internet resource, uh, same thing, to learn these western states, uh, learn what tags are available, what opportunities are out there, uh, draw success rates, success rates on bulls, so much information to go through there. And it's really helped me over the years to dial in these units and find these, these good opportunities and these good places to hunt throughout the west uh, on a blue-collar blue collar budget. So uh, make sure to check that out. It's Eastman's Tag Hub. If you put in the promo code BRIAN, you can get 20% off that as well. Uh, and check out everything we've got going on at Eastman's. Uh, check out the uh, show on the outdoor channel, Eastman's Hunting TV. Set your DVR to that. And then also our internet TV show, Beyond the Grid. Uh, I think I saw that Ike Eastman's hunt for 200-inch buck was coming out um, this week or coming out here shortly. It might be out already. You can check it. But, um, gosh, he just kills this great Wyoming buck with all this uh, trash on it. Uh, so super cool. Uh, make sure to check that out. And um, man, with that, let's get into this podcast. It's an awesome one. So um, Michael Alba, uh, I'm your host, Brian Barney, Eastman's Elevated. Here we go. All right, I'm live here with my buddy, Michael Alba. Uh, I've had him on the podcast before, uh, had a great season this season, and um, so excited to have you back on. Yeah, Brian, good morning. Uh, it's a couple early mornings for us. I think we're getting after it at about five in the morning. So uh, excited to be back on. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure uh, talking with you and uh, being able to share stories. Yeah, absolutely. You've got uh, a new little one in the house, and so um, uh, you're probably trying to be quiet as you're up this morning, huh? <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of like huddled into the corner of the garage uh, <laughs> and and, and I put my camp chair out to sort of feel like I'm at sitting at camp, um, which is nice. It's not cold here yet in Oregon. It's been a pretty uh, warm year, which is interesting. But, uh, yeah, I'm definitely trying to stay a little bit quiet. But the house is big <laughs> enough. They're on one end. I'm on the other. It's all good. Oh, that's perfect. Yeah. Uh, so Oregon's been pretty warm this winter so far, huh? Yeah. You know, we uh, I always check that drought monitor map and see what's going on periodically through the months, particularly when the antlers are growing. Um, and it's been wet this fall, which has been good. Uh, but there hasn't been a lot of snow falling, which is kind of bad for the rivers and, you know, that late season runoff type moisture. Um, so we're hoping to get some snow up in the mountains throughout the winter. But, you know, I mean, it's going to be 68 degrees on like the 2nd of December, which is just crazy over here. 
uh, for that kind of temperature. Um, but you know what? what? Those deer have a little bit easier winter when it's more rainy than it is uh, snowy. So it's a, it's a, it's a trade-off. Sometimes you can get better uh, antlers the next year because they didn't have a lot of stuff to deal with, with fighting snow and looking for food if a lot of snow falls. So it's kind of like a catch-22, but we're hoping for a little snow in the mountains, uh, but not snow everywhere, and the rain's been good, so thank God for that. But still drought. Oh, good deal, yeah. Um, seems like all these western states are in mm-hmm. a drought nowadays. Um, yeah. Wow, and, it's, uh, and, and it seems also like the season's... Uh, maybe it's just me and just living where I do, but it seems like they're showing up later and later every year. And we've got the same mild temperatures as you guys do here in Montana, where, yeah, I think it's 50s, 60s this week in yeah. Montana in the first week of December, which is it's just crazy. crazy. I know. <laughs> Tell me about it. Yeah. Um, did you notice um, – uh, did you notice anything with the the rule changes in Oregon uh, making non-residents pick their unit this year? Did that help with the pressure at all? Did you notice any changes when you were out hunting? Oh, it's it's been a wild ride over just the last four or five years in general with these western states. I mean, I started bow hunting, I can't remember, eight or, eight or nine or ten years ago or somewhere in there. Um, and, you know, there was so much opportunity available just five years ago. And, uh, you know, Idaho kind of shut their stuff down and you have to pick things in January. Now, Oregon is all draw for archery for deer and for elk this year. Um, I'm trying to think of what other opportunities have gone away. It's gotten harder to draw stuff in Colorado. I mean, just harder to draw stuff everywhere. Um, as far as Oregon's concerned, I've had a unit that since I've moved here, I've been working at kind of like my core unit that I go back to every year. That's always been over the counter archery for both deer and elk. And it's a, it's a nine point unit for, for rifle. So guys like it from a rifle standpoint. Um, and then this is the first year everything's gone to draw and I didn't want to burn all my points, putting it in as a first choice thing. So I put it in as a second choice, hoping I would get it and I didn't get it. And a bunch of my other buddies got it. Um, cause they had already burnt their points, points and they went in as a first choice person in the draw. And so I had to learn a new unit. So I got pushed a little farther east than I normally have gone to, but I've always kind of wanted to go to this other unit. So it kind of took me out of my comfort zone, put me in a new spot and it was exciting because I had to learn a whole new area. Man, that's super cool. Yeah. Um, well, it's uh, uh, serendipitous. You know, it's like uh, uh didn't mean for it to happen. Definitely want to hunt that unit. You've got so much knowledge in, but it, it is also really fun and exciting to learn something from scratch like that. And you're right. Like, I want to get back to that as um, uh, as I know you harvested a good mule deer this past season. But these draws across the West are getting tougher and tougher. And um you're right, like uh, 10 years ago, uh, 15 years ago, 20 years ago when I started this, it was like they were giving these bow tags away, these tags mm-hmm. that rifle guys would do anything to draw. Right. Heck, they just give us a, a, a great season for archery. There wasn't many guys after it. It was so difficult. And, and back then, I don't even think guys thought they could kill mule deer with a bow. It seemed like they were giving those mule deer tags <laughs> away a dime a dozen, you know. But yeah. it has. It's got tougher over the years. And, and units that, that I know I've fallen in love with, you know, I've had to come to terms with. I may never get to hunt that place again as point creep just starts to get – 
you know, six, seven points, eight, nine points, and I'm a I'm a zero to two point or zero to three point uh, uh, unit hunter, you sure. know, and so for me, I've had to come come to terms with it, but um, it it it's it's been challenging for sure but you know all we can do is just keep fighting the good fight and keep trying to adapt and right. find other good units like you did in Oregon this year is just going to a new place and trying to figure it out from scratch what were some of the lessons you learned in that place um well before i touch on that i i kind of wanted to just get back to the whole point thing and having a strategy I, i've yeah. i've realized now that i think i need this strategy so I've got certain amount of, you know, hunting years where I can climb mountains in a really good way. I'm 40 something now and I have kind of no man's lands points in a lot of different states. Um, and I've always wanted to just go and hunt like a couple premier units in different states where it takes like 15 to 20 points to draw. So knowing something like that, I'm going to I'm going to keep those states and those units just tucked away. If it ever happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't. That's all good. I'll figure it out when I have to cross that bridge. But in the meantime, I really need to always have those units you can revisit and go to year to year, whether that be in my home state or California or Arizona or wherever, because that's how you become a good bow hunter. You're still flinging arrows and you have the opportunity to get to know some animals in the area. For instance, that unit that I got pushed out of this year, we we're after this one deer for three years in a row. And they actually took him on the rifle hunt. He was, I think he was, uh, he went in the low 180s, but he was a little bigger a couple of years before. But he was just this cagey old mule deer buck that we talked on the last podcast about. And, and, and I wasn't able to go after him this year because I had to go to a new spot. But it's all good, you know. But I just want to be able to go to the same spot year after year so that I can know those nooks and crannies and know exactly what the thermals are going to do in certain times and, and have that kind of knowledge. So moving on from that and my sad sob story, this new <laughs> unit, it was it was awesome, man. I went out there. I did a little bit of scouting. I started uh, hitting the ground with the boots um, in one area. wasn't liking the numbers I was seeing, kind of moved to a different spot. Then I up and jumped all the way, you know, a couple hundred and fifty miles to the whole other side of the unit. And I got to talking to a rancher over there. And he gave me some tips because they have all these alfalfa pivots in the middle of sagebrush country. And it's like it's just like a buffet for deer to go to those type of things. So I just was asking him some questions about what it was like for him with the drought and different things going on. And do they see deer in here and what time of year do they see it? And, and do they have like uh, trespass tags and stuff like that? And he had an, an operation going on out there where they've been selling landowner tags for, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. And they're killing 220-inch bucks over the last few years. Uh, not last few years, but in the, the history of these ranches. But actually, as of late, they haven't had a lot of big deer because of the drought. But he kind of gave me a little bit of pointers about some public land areas to go. And he's like, if you, if you like hiking, go hit this mountain up. You know what I mean? Um so I was able to go do that, and I and I put like four or five days of scouting in, and I was right into the deer right off the bat, and it was it seemed pretty promising, a lot of numbers, but nothing really old and mature. But you know, I'm I'm looking at them in the middle of August, um, and stop me and 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 break in if you if, if you want, because I'll just keep clapping my lips forever over. No here. worries, this is perfect. <laughs> no, it's perfect. Um, so so I went and did a little scouting up there. And I found, you know, a lot of numbers of deer and all kind of smaller, like two, three-year-old bucks, just like little three points and two by threes and some small 
four by fours. And I was just kind of looking for a good one, you know? Um, and I, I, you know, it's a tricky thing with those mule deer in the early season. Cause it, we had it up in the mid nineties where we were hunting. It's late August. Um, and these deer are not out a lot. And I, I think even the ones that were like, uh, let's just say like a 160 class four point that's probably been around for four or five years. Um, I mean, he's going to bed as soon as that sun hits him. So you got to think that the real big ones are probably in bed even before that because they've, they've been doing all their business at night or they're in some other spot or maybe they're just not there at all. Um, so you kind of inventory the place and you, and you, you start to see the same deer over and over and then you move to a different spot and you might see this buck and you might not ever see him again. So then you kind of have a general idea of what I can find in this area, you know, and, and I'm not going to keep continuing on in the unit because I know I need to learn this particular spot and figure out how to hunt these deer before I even try to find something bigger. So I, I, I found a couple nice bucks that were, you know, in the 160 to 175 kind of range. And I was like, I'm just going to stick here and hunt the, hunt these deer and learn them. Um, and, and be happy with that. And I was, and I was happy with it. And I, I gave it, I think 13 or 14 days and there was like three deer I was after. Um, and the one that I wound up getting, I saw him one day and I didn't see him again for seven days after that. And the first day I, I got on him, I pushed him in the middle of the, the morning and he ran through this basin up into some stuff and bedded down. And I, I spotted him, you know, a good thousand yards away solo under a tree. He kind of broke away from his pack of does he was with, um, put a stock on him, got skylined at 95 yards and bugger hit him out and didn't see him for about seven days. <laughs> <laughs> and he wound up in the same basin, but probably a half a mile away, like down the drainage in some lower elevation. Uh, that's seven days later. And he was out in the sun, and I kind of picked out his antlers because he had a really um, distinguishable set of antlers that were kind of narrow but really tall um, and real deep forks. And he was a nice buck, and I could pick him out right away. And I saw him in this in this spot that was below some rim rock, um, and I said, "Man, that sh- looks like a good situation." And it's let's see, it's like 4 p.m. right now. So if he's up stretching his legs, I know he's not going to really make his big feeding move until it gets dark or that sun's over the horizon. So I don't think he's going to go anywhere. He's just up stretching for a little bit, and he's probably going to mull around in that same spot before he makes a move. So I did. I, I got on my horse and did a big walk all the way around, you know, as far as you could go, because they had some of those, what I like to call noise plants, you know, those like really roughly like dried plants that are close to the bottom of the, just like right on the, on the ground. You've okay. been in these things, haven't you? Uh, I ran into in noise plants before. I'm not sure if it's the same ones, but yeah, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> well, they, I mean, you, you sound like a freight train moving through the woods with these things. Um, and they're all over and you can't really step around them. You got to make a little bit of noise. So there was a patch of noise plants between me and him, so I had to do the extra long path to get around the back and finally got up over the top of that rim rock. Uh, and, and this is where it got fun and interesting and got to the point where um, I, I came in on this buck and, you know, I thought he was going to be in one spot and he wasn't there. And I'm kind of bird dogging around a rock to look over and I had really no idea what the distance was, I was thinking about 50 yards because you start dropping pins on your Onyx and measuring it and thinking like, well, if he's by that tree and I'm up here, it's going to be roughly around that that distance. Um, 
And I finally caught a glimpse of him as I poked my head around a rock. And of course he was nailed right on me when he, when I poked my head around, but he didn't really know what I was. So I started to like ease back and got in this completely compromised, uh, like bad karate position where I'm sort of like all my uh, weight on one leg and the leg starts shaking and you're trying to be as still as possible. And I have no idea how far away he is, but I know he's looking at me. <laughs> so I can only see an ear and an antler. Um, and I'm just going to wait it out. And I'm, at this point, I'm bl- blown away that he hasn't buggered out of there yet. Because, but the wind's still good, so he's just sort of curious as to what that movement was. So he, he starts kind of like peeking his head around the corner to find out what I am. And we're sitting there for about five minutes just waiting for this to happen. And he does a little flip where he turns around and I see his tail as opposed to his antlers coming around the rock. And at that point, I'm able to get my rangefinder out and range him at 31 yards. And then he flipped back around, put his head right back where it was before, and then gave me like four or five steps to the right, and I was able to put one right in the boiler room. And he went about 150 yards, and I was able to get him, and I was just stoked on it after 13 days of being out there. And, you know, pack out and all that stuff and a beer at the trailer at the end of the day, and it was a successful mission. And that's as that's as good as it gets. Um, so much of what you discussed there, I just love. You know, like we're you know we were talking about tags and how tough they are to obtain and uh, adapting to the current conditions. You know, there's also a lot of bow hunters out there and a lot of bow hunters going hard. And there's there's so many different skill sets and and facets into being a successful bow hunter. But man, Michael, as you talk, like I can just tell, like throughout the years. You know, you've paid your dues and really paid attention and treated this whole Western hunting like a chess game, like really trying to figure it out. And um, it seems like, um, you know, time in country, like there's still this there's still this place where guys like me and you can go out and spend 13 days like trying to find a good buck, you know, and, and and trying to trying to move through country and dissect country and finding vantage points and just playing this chess game, you know, out in the wild just to try to find a mature buck and and I love what you said too about finding these bucks and knowing that there there are bigger bucks around, but your first year in a unit finding big mature mule deer and really focusing and honing your efforts in on those, and then um, you know you spooked that one buck and then found him seven days later, you know down lower in the sagebrush in the that drainage and relocated him. But then on your stock, like there's just like a hundred right moves you have to make to be able to have it all come together and to arrow a good buck. And it's like the most difficult challenge on planet earth. Like you were 13 days into it uh, of absolutely 100% of your effort this year just to get that one chance. But there's the, like this hundred decisions that have to go right, you know, on the stock moving around the noise making plants. And then what I thought was so perfect is, is your, your close range proximity and and I can just I can hear the experience level as you tell the story as you come around and you see that mule deer looking at you or he catches that movement and, and mule deer are wired to catch that movement and where a lot of guys make a mistake is right then and there trying to get drawn and trying to shoot that buck or trying to get their rangefinder up and trying to 
to to hit that buck and instead you kind of slid back out of sight and you just stayed motionless in your karate position as you say um there is nothing more difficult than trying to hold still is there like motionless <laughs> like that like it's fine for 30 seconds or 45 seconds but when that turns to minutes or 10 oh, minutes yeah. or 15 minutes the cramps start to come on and and our human brains just aren't wired to be still for that long. Like we just right. feel like we have to move. And um, but that patience, like if you can just be patient. And that buck had caught a little bit of movement. And it seems like what mule deer do is if they hear you, even if they see a little movement or if they catch something, they stare in that direction until they can confirm that they did see something move or they did see something out of place. And you mm -hmm. never gave that buck that opportunity to see you move again or to catch that movement again. And so you waited there patiently. And the buck turned, and you still didn't get too excited. That's where you slid out your rangefinder, caught a range on them. And, yeah, they'll they'll actually turn back around. Or I've seen a lot of deer, deer do it is when they, they know there's some danger there, but they haven't seen it move. They start walking off, and they, they turn around again, and they, they want to get a look at whatever that danger is. And, you know, I think it's just their instincts, the way they're wired. If it's a coyote or a mountain lion, they want to catch it. And in fact, I just like on this last hunt, I watched a mountain lion hunting these deer and making right. those moves like that and so stealthy. But, you know, he got busted as well. They went over the rise and he made a little too quick of a motion over that rise, even <clears throat> though he'd been waiting patiently and those deer caught him and busted out, you know. But, man, you just played that so perfect to kill that buck. You have to be really proud of your effort in a new unit. And then those moves you make in close proximity, like that's um, that's like the evolution of a hunter, and that's all your years coming into work and that 13-day hunt, man. It's just an awesome story. Hey, man, thank you, and I appreciate that, and I I totally agree with you. The evolution of of the hunt, and with these mule deer on public land, it's got to be the trickiest thing to do, and to kind of put yourself in the shoes of what a mountain lion would do, or or, or try to think like how these animals think. Um, you know, I think the reason why I didn't get busted is because that deer just caught a little bit of movement around a rock and then that movement sort of disappeared for an extended period of time and the wind was in a good position. Right. So like if, you know, and I'm, I'm thinking if I were a cat, would I lose sight of my prey for that much time, you know, or would, or would that cat be inch a little closer and would that, uh, mule deer get a better clock me a little bit better and then know that it was time to bust out of there. You know, like I, it, I just had his curiosity enough and that's the different personalities between different deer. Cause one deer wouldn't put up with that at all. Another deer, you might walk right by and he won't move at all either. You know, they all have different personalities and level of skittishness. And that's just so fun and exciting to think about that. Um, and that's what keeps you coming back for more because you are always going to get schooled out there by these animals and if you don't want to come back even harder afterwards, you got to seriously evaluate <laughs> bow hunting. <laughs> yeah, because we, it's just—it's like a taste in your mouth. You got to get back out there, like, and we you know when you start pushing day 13, 14, 15, you start thinking like, you know what? It's okay. I might eat my tag this year. I'm looking for a nice one. Like that's part of the game, you know. And then and then somehow like on the 14th day, like this deer shows up after seven days of being gone, and then he just happens to be in a good spot. And you're like, well, why did it take so long for that to happen? You know, it's just so weird. <laughs> um, 
And, and I can tell you the very first day of the hunt, I missed a shot that was a perfect 60-yard shot. And I just want to call it the yips because when you haven't bow hunted all year long and you're shooting targets and you come out there and you think you're this badass bow hunter, you have to remember how slick these animals are and that your composure is not 100% like as soon as you hit the woods on day one. So I missed a shot, you know, in the very beginning of the hunt. And I practice all year long, but that happens to you because these animals are super slick, man. And it's like, I always wonder, like, if I were to draw some fancy tag in Utah or Arizona for mule deer and you go out there and it's your first hunt, it's like, I better go try to get an antelope tag somewhere before that so I can get all my misses out of the way and be like dead on by the time I get that fancy tag early season archery mule deer. You're so spot on. Yeah. Uh, that's exactly like, uh, right. I love, uh, uh, talking about that, that tag strategy as well, how you're waiting out for some States. And I, I have like kind of a similar strategy that I run, but yeah, I think about that too, you know, drawing a good tag because I also have the yips at the beginning of the year, that first stock or that first oh, time yeah. in, in close range or close proximity, it just seems like the adrenaline's ramped up a bit and, um, you know, and, and it, it, it takes a while to get back in the routine of things, and and not that I, you know, it, a lose respect is the wrong way to say, but I almost like forget how keen these animals' instincts yes. are, and I've got to right. relearn it almost every hunt, every year. Every They're know. so switched on, and I and know. you know, and 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 you just make mistakes. That's just how it is. Um, and, you know, I just had this late season hunt, and um, I had the. You know, I had the same thing where I got a shot early in the hunt and I tried to slide it between, um, you know, it was in the Aspens and I thought I had a clear lane and I thought I could see the trajectory of my arrow. And I'm really good with branches around because I've hit enough of them over mm -hmm. the years that I've learned like where I can get an arrow through and where I'm trying to force it. And I thought Your I heart. had them. And it slid through the window I was shooting through, and it just hit the last branch on the way to him, you know. He was like mm. 52 or whatever, and the arrow slid right, missed him. And so, you know, I had that miss early, and, and I almost had to re-familiarize myself, even though I'd been hunting deer all year long, like how switched on they are, even during the rut. Like the, right. you know, the bucks kind of throw caution into the wind a little bit more, but they won't put up with with everything in the world but it's those does and those high numbers of does it's almost like when you're hunting elk you know where you got to beat all the cows and i made a mistake towards the end of the hunt that i just oh i was so frustrated at myself for making it and it was this doe and this buck was rutting her and they were in a perfect place slid over there it was snowing and blowing and caught him just over the rise at 50 some yards and kind of walking away and rutting this doe no idea i was there and then that doe turned around and brought that buck and brought that buck right down below me broadside. And so I kind of knelt down. They hadn't caught movement. They didn't know I was there. So I was knelt kind of in some open sage, and here she comes, and she brings that buck <laughs> right by me. And I've got my rangefinder up to my eye, so I'm hitting him the whole time, you know. And <clears throat> they start to get broadside to me, and he's 40 yards broadside. And um, 
I tried to I tried to draw and tried to shoot him right there as she brought him by at 40 yards. But but the problem was is they were so broadside and could see that movement so clearly that when I tried to draw, she blew up and took that buck with her, and they never stopped to look back, never gave me an opportunity. And I was so frustrated at myself as I know better to try to move when their heads are positioned where they can see you or catch that movement. And I think I had just been, you know, it had been a lot of aggressive plays in there as I was hunting during the rut and bucks were moving and things. And he's finally there at 40 yards. And I just got caught up in it and tried to draw and blew him out. And I thought, Brian, God, you know better than that. You know, what I should have done is let that doe and buck work by me, even though it would have been a longer shot, and tried to get a quartering away where I could have drawn my bow without them catching that movement. And so it it just seems like we... You know, sometimes I have to learn these lessons over and over again before they stick. It, it's not the first time I make a mistake, but I think it is key like to to evolve our skills and to become better bow hunters. We have to learn from these failures. You know, you have mm. to pay attention to when deer bust your pay attention to when you miss. And really, that's it seems like when you can level up and put that, you know, in your log and you in your mind that 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 then wires into your instincts for the next play. Uh, but if you just keep running around spooking deer, like uh, you, you're never going to get there. It's like taking it to this other level, uh, uh, using that patience like you did, like really learning from those encounters and becoming better because these deer, even if you're into a bunch of good bucks and you're getting stocks, there's no guarantee that you're going to close a deal. Their instincts are so keen that you just can't make any mistakes. It's got to be a hundred right decisions, and you have to treat every opportunity like like it's your last opportunity. Like you have to do like there's no shortcuts. You have to do everything possible to be undetected, keep that element of surprise, and, and then you know make those moves in crunch time. But it's uh, way easier said than done when you're out in the field. But there's just nothing better than that than um, you know. Uh, 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 really like uh, uh, challenging yourself or really trying to get close to these mule deer, like playing that chess game. Boy, that's where all the fun is for me. I just love it. I'm with you there, man. And, and hindsight is 2020. Um, and I still think that every mule deer has a different personality. But as a species in general, like you're right, that you have they are switched on and you have to be the utmost cautious kind of hunter tiptoeing around getting to the right spots, doing everything, making all the right plays perfectly. Um, but, you know, I think in your defense where you drew when you thought you should have drawn a little bit later, you know, that could have worked on a, a particular buck that was in rut with his head down and focusing on something else. You know, so I don't think you can beat yourself up about it too much because you just never know. They're wild animals first and foremost. Um and, you know, it is what it is. And I think that when I go, because I missed a couple shots on this last hunt, and if I'm beating myself up about it, it's only going to have negative things throughout the course of my hunt. I just got to stay positive and, and think of it as an extension of the hunt and another opportunity to go in there and succeed later. You can't get bummed out and be like, that's it. That's my only opportunity. I'm, I'm out of here. Seven days into the hunt. You got to just keep pushing until you're out of time. And, and that's how it goes. And, and, and I wish I had more time, you know, and I, I'm fortunate for the time I got. Um, but, you know, and I think some people go out there and they think they're going to get something done in three or four days. And I'm not saying you can't get it done in three or four days, but you got to give yourself an adequate amount of time to fail 
to succeed, to pick yourself back up again, and to learn from all those mistakes on a hunt and also throughout the years. Um, so I, one word of advice I would have is like, just block off as much time as you can. I know some, some guys can only get five days off from work or four days off or a couple weekends here and there, but the more time you have in the field, the better off you are. Oh, tr- time is crucial. And you, you've spoken like a, like a true successful bow hunter. It isn't the one encounter. Like we make mistakes and you do, you have to have a short term memory. Like you, you learn from them and you try to evaluate it. And you're right. If that would have worked out, I would have been a hero and said, you know, and it, I also could have waited and that buck could have never stopped going and chased exactly. that doe right out of my life out of range. And I would have thought, yep. gosh, I should have tried to draw when he was right there 40 yards broadside. <laughs> so it is like a double-edged sword but you you look at it you know you you may get frustrated at times but you just got to pick yourself up a short-term memory and just get back after it and like listening to to some of those um I remember listening to Joe Montana like on a podcast and you know he just forgets the the interceptions and that every game day he goes out and thinks he's going to succeed and and, and you have to almost have that same mindset where you can't think back of that last miss. And, and we all miss. We all fail. Like, it's just part of the game. You know, whether the deer moves, whether it's uh, our shot execution, you know, whether it's a limb like the like I had in that case. Like, um, yep. we all miss and we will all fail. Like, like bow hunting failure is a prerequisite. So you better Amen. get pretty good at accepting it and moving on. And, and right. it's real easy, like, when you hear... You know, you hear guys, you know, guys will come up and tell me hunting stories and they'll tell me about the one close encounter that they had with a mule deer and the one stock that they got on this giant buck. And, and I'm the same as you is, um, you know, I may have that one stock or that one failure, but blocking up, blocking off enough time uh, to to go out and to get another opportunity. And and it may take me two, three, four, heck, it may even take me five stocks to get it done. And and, right. and um you know, same thing on, on this hunt, you know, as I had that failure on that buck late in that hunt and I kept pushing, I actually changed areas late in the hunt. I got snowed out of this spot that had been so good to me and had to go, uh, to a new range and a range that I had hunted before. So this is my third year hunting this place. And mm-hmm. I, I was yet to harvest a buck and I was getting late in the hunt and down to my last day. And I found a great big, heavy, older mule deer and, um, he doesn't score great, but super impressive rack and a good inline and real nice and heavy. And, and I just take yeah, I saw all that those... one. You could just tell he had some age on him, which is cool. Yeah. <laughs> oh, he was a super cool buck. And um, you know, just learning from those lessons throughout of being patient. Um, you know, I slid down into range, and he was actually in bow range for quite a while. And I couldn't slide around the tree to get a shot because there was always a doe looking in my direction, and there was. 12 to 15 does and they were so switched on that I could set my hand down in the grass and I felt like they could hear it and then they'd look in my direction and pick up their head like I just couldn't move for 40 minutes you know but just playing it patient letting things develop recircling around restocking again keeping that element of surprise it it eventually came together for me but uh you know it's (laughs) like a I have to relearn those lessons every year, it seems, or at least yeah. some of them, uh, you know, about patience and getting close. Uh, but that, that chess match is so fun. And I, I love what you said about the personalities of these deer as well. And, um, you know, and getting an antelope hunt in before a big mule deer hunt that you have. I think that's key, those high opportunity hunts. 
uh, to familiarize ourselves with it, but also just to get in tune with the woods and like like hunting uh, axis deer. Those things are so switched on. Those bucks oh, yeah. are so switched on that it's um you know like I know I can never try to draw my bow on an axis buck if he's looking at me. Like it just doesn't work. The moment they see that that movement, they're gone in a flash. And so I learned that lesson pretty quick on axis deer. So then I learned that no matter if that thing's in range, no matter if he's broadside, I just absolutely can't move a muscle. And then once he starts to turn to go, maybe he saw me or caught motion or looking in my direction. Once he starts to go, you know, that's my time to draw my bow. And I think, you know, sometimes deer and elk will put up with the draw of a bow if done really slowly, you know, if they see you, like it's kind of... Um, you know, they'll, they'll put up with that little bit of movement, but axis deer will not. And I think I can bring a lot of that skill set to the Western game of these deer and these elk, uh, just of, of not trying to draw my bow in sight. And a lot of times when these deer look in your direction, maybe they catch a little movement. They don't know what you are. They don't see you. And if you just hold still, it's amazing the the game board will kind of reset. Like there was multiple times on this last hunt where I'd have, you know, a doe catch a little bit of movement or see something and be looking in my direction. And it may be 20 minutes I had to sit there. But eventually she goes back to being a deer. She didn't see that danger. She didn't see it move again. And they go back to being a deer because they can't be on guard 24 hours a day all day right. long like eventually they've got to go back to feeding or being a deer that buck ruts them but it's just amazing how a lot of times when these deer are looking at you or they look in your direction they don't actually see you they're just looking for that confirmation of that movement again i see the same thing for elk too uh, if you can get really good at holding still uh like that's that's one of the biggest keys to getting close i think don't you Oh, a hundred percent. Um, and there's a bunch of little minor nuances to holding still too, that I don't know if it gets discussed a lot. Um, and you'll learn about this, the more you're in the field. I mean, you being still is one thing, but like positioning your head in a certain way and, um, just moving your eyes to look around. Like when you freeze, you have to freeze. You can't move your hand to move the arrow off. So it makes less noise. You can't, adjust your foot because your leg's falling asleep. Like you can't rotate the lid of your hat an inch. It's over with. Like you have to be absolutely frozen and move your, just your eyes and try not to even move your eyes that much because <laughs> if you're close enough, they'll key in on that. Um, and, and that's part of the thing that's just so amazing about mule deer hunting too, is, 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 is learning all those things. And, and man, when it comes together, when you're that patient and you've, develop a skill like that and you realize that you have that in your bag of tricks where you can keep that still and then you you pre-shadow you pre-visualize and like pre-shadow what you're going to do on the stock like you're if you're going to get in close to that deer that's on the rim rock and you know he's down there you're not going to come in with some cockeyed position where you're going to be super uncomfortable if you have to freeze for half an hour you know you're going to crawl in and make sure all your stuff's lined up as you're crawling in so that once you get in your frozen position, you can just stay there. You know what I mean? And you have to think about that before you, before you even start moving in where you're going to go. Not, not even just about what tree you're going to get behind, but like, how's your body position going to land up when you, when you get there? You know what I mean? Oh, you're so right. 
there are so many nuances to it. And and I love what you said about holding still. It is motionless. And I've had to break the habit of like trying to pull up my binos and thinking my body will cover it or trying to pull up a rangefinder. It is motionless. Like you can't move your head, you can't mm-hmm. move your body. Absolutely motionless. And you may have to do this multiple times throughout the stock and and like i say us us humans are just not wired to be that still like we want to move we want to you know our brains are almost telling us to make something happen but the the key to it is being able to freeze like that for minutes or tens of minutes at a time yeah and you know the 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 other thing that i've been learning uh, to elevate my game to the next level that i continue to make errors on is getting skylined because I get into these positions where I'm coming up over a deer, I'm coming to the side or something. And if you're skylined, I mean, you are broadcasting your position a hundred times more than you would be if you're uh, uh, silhouetted up against sagebrush or forest or woods or whatever it is. Because every little movement's even more in, amplified because you're just cut out against a, a big white sky. And they can see contrast way better than they can see movement in like a little bush. Like let's just say the wind's blowing at seven miles an hour through some sagebrush and everything's kind of just undulating a little bit. And you move your arm a little bit like that's just another piece of sagebrush moving a little bit. But if you're stood up skyline and you just rotate your hat brim, it's like over with. You know what I mean? Oh, it's so true. And they can even pick you out still on a skyline just because you, uh, your the silhouette you. does stand out, right. you know, where they pick it out, where they think, you it's know, foreign. it doesn't matter what your camo is. It's a humanoid in the, you know, coming yeah. over the ridge at them. You 100%. Know? So, yep. Yeah. That, uh, yeah, we have to continue to evolve this. So you're almost better off to try to sneak over the skyline and then try to get yourself set up for a shot right. where you're, where you're tucked in the brush. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I noticed too, like I love hunting open country, but it it seems like it's really tough to move. If you're in eyesight of those deer, it, it's uh it, it's almost like not a feasible approach to try to move in. And sometimes even getting a tree in between me and them, they'll catch my movement in between the branches. They can mm-hmm. see it coming, and so sure. it's really using that topography and then. You know, like, like for me, like part of the evolution is just, um, you know, when I first started bow hunting, I was crawling and belly crawling a bunch and I, I got away from it. I'm, I'm quieter on my feet and and using topography as I love to move in that way. But there's a time to be out of eyesight of those animals or there's a time it's okay to hold up a hundred yards out and kind of let things develop and let things happen. And, And it's also you know, like if if you can get that human silhouette down, like I was hunting these deer in this big wide open south facer that dropped off into this bottom, um, mm. but I could use the contours of that ridge to get close enough, and, and then I could I could keep crawling and get some more. I could slide down on my butt with my bow on my lap and get some more, and it was um it, it's just a. Uh, you have to keep out of eyesight of those things. If they catch any movement, you're just caught or you're busted. It's like really using that topography oh, yeah. and keeping yourself out of that sight window of those deer. And, and then it is waiting for the, the right spot or waiting for them to be in a spot where you can get in there undetected because their, their instincts are just so keen and they're so good at catching you that the moment you, you do like a – 
like a a stock where you're exposed or you think, gosh, he might bust me doing this. Nine times out of ten or 99 times out of 100, if you think he's going to catch you, he catches you. You know, like the stock's <laughs> over with, and then you got to start over and go try to relocate another deer, you know, right. which can take days, you know. And so, like, really taking these stocks seriously – not taking any shortcuts and putting everything into it. Like, uh, it's it's not just being clutch during your shot as a good bow hunter. It's being clutch with your opportunity. Like, you, you see this deer, you have him in your glass. Now it's being clutch and putting the right stock together to try to give yourself an opportunity to shoot that animal. It doesn't always work out like we talked about. But, but I really try to treat every stock that way um, a, as an opportunity and try to be at my very best when I get that chance. Yes. And you have to be smart about it. And to expound a little bit on a situation in this new unit that I had is I found some bucks on this east facing slope every day at the same time every day. And here poses the challenge is that the sun is whacking you in the face when you're glassing them right when they start to stand up in their evening position. And if you move at all, you're just a glowing humanoid going across the sagebrush and they pick you out two miles away. So what do you do? Do you try to come over the top and look look for him in the shade? The, the, I tried that once. It's too steep on the hill there. You can't see him. So what do you do? The, it's a really tricky situation, and the wind's kind of swirling always in the evening there. But there's deer there every evening. So it's like – so these are great situations where you can have enough – if you have enough time, you can kind of try to play that chess game and figure out the best – scenario now i never got a deer in this position but i was able to get closer every every day i was in there hunting these deer and i found that i couldn't make any moves until that sun went over the horizon and i needed to avoid the noise plants on this side and then the wind was swirly over there so there's really only like one situation where i could go in and it's on this one little spine and it could only happen after the sun went over the horizon but then I could get within like a hundred yards. And, th- and then at that point you're rolling the dice to see if you can get in even closer and it, everything has to line up perfectly in a whole different level. But even just to get to that first level of getting within a hundred yards, you had to have like five things working for you. And it took you four days to figure out those five things. <laughs> uh, man, you know, I, I love you, that. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. Oh man. I hear you 100%. Yeah. It's a, uh... Uh, uh, creative thinking is rewarded, you know, it's mm-hmm. like, um, uh, you know, bow hunting is, you know, just like life. It's just problem solving, you know, it's like mm-hmm. high level problem solving and you just don't get this, you know, that many chances or encounters. And so it's making good, you know, on those opportunities that you get, but yeah, it's high level problem solving. Sure. It's, it's like, uh, are you ready for the second half of my hunt and some problem solving? Oh, I can't wait. <laughs> Um, so I dedicated the beginning of it to scout and to be out there for mule deer. But in my travels in this super sagebrushy country, I came across some elk. And I had heard they'd been in this unit and was even told that you'd be surprised at the type of elk you'd see out there. There's not a lot of them, but they're elk out there. So I, I, I came across a couple of cows one morning. And then I think about four or five days into the hunt, I was like, I needed a, a morning off. Every now and then I'll take a morning off because I find that I get really rejuvenated if I take like one morning off and then hit it hard after that. And it just happened to be that morning I was sitting there in my underwear drinking coffee and a herd of about 40 elk come running 120 yards from my tent. 
and there's like a big 340 type bull in this in this herd and i i was just like oh this is perfect i love this <laughs> you know, the, the one morning you take off they're running right by the camp and you haven't seen a, a bull elk in six days and this thing's actually pretty dang big it's like a big old six point with his herd so i blew a call at him and he turned around but he had wanted nothing to do with me because he had already had his girls and he was headed over the horizon um so i thought to myself well, i'm going to come back in the second half of season after i get this mule deer down and i'll i'll try to target some of these elk so i went back did the family thing for a week and i'm like well i'll come back in late september maybe they'll they'll be a little more rut activity and i got to going into uh some of these little sparse canyons that had uh aspen quakey drainages where there's like where i would think there'd be cover for elk and there's like some moisture down there and some wallow type things the rest of the country is just that really tall sagebrush and there's no cover and i don't know where these elk hide i know the deer will will nuzzle into these little sagebrushes because the sagebrush can be four or five feet tall and they'll cut something out to keep shade off of them but i i just don't know if the elk go in there either i'd never found them in there they were always in the thicker stuff so i started working that and I had to get into a different area <clears throat> on the back side of the mountain where I wasn't hunting mule deer. And I was taking this one trail up on the ATV as the jump off spot to hike in a couple miles after that. And, you know, I've had this ATV for a few years now, about six years, and I beat it pretty hard. I think it's got 3,000 miles on it, and I'm kind of always bumping and grinding over stuff. And it started to make some strange noises that I wasn't particularly used to or fond of and I, I i was kind of like up on top of this hill and eight miles on the gravel road from the camp and i finished the hunt for the night and it was really making some strange noises on the way down the hill and then when i got to the bottom of the hill i sort of opened up the atv and got going 20 miles an hour on the the small gravel road back to where my camp was um and it just puttered out and it was done and there was an oil slick behind it and I said, wow, what happened there? So I started looking at it and trying to figure stuff out and starting it up again. And the thing's just completely seized. All the air messages start coming up on it. And I'm like, all right, well, here we go. Adventure and good story for the grandkids begin. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, you know, I started with this, the eight-mile walk back to the camp. I, I loaded up uh, the trailer, and I tried to get this thing onto the trailer by myself and was able to creatively Mickey Mouse like a couple of ratchet straps uh, intermittently with the parking brake on to like hoist it up onto the trailer in a, in a precarious position where I had no like way to adjust my level to roll it on. And it, you know, the thing weighs 700 pounds. So I finally got it up on there. I felt horribly accomplished doing that. And I got it onto the trailer and out of that unit because I couldn't, um, hunt without that thing. Cause I couldn't get to the spots I needed to get to. So I wound up going actually back to the unit that I got pushed out of for Mulder this year because I think it's the last year I could hunt elk in there. So I'm, I'm going to go team up with the buddy that's over there. And we got together, and he said he had only seen one elk, and he'd been there for 27 days. Oh. So, I, so I said, okay, that's all right. But, you know, I went out this morning, and I saw a whole bunch of mule deer, and there's a couple of nice four points. And he's like, well, I would love to get on one of those. I'm like, well, let's go. I'll get you on one of them because I know where they are. And we went in there that morning, and lo and behold right where i thought they'd be they popped up at like 80 yards and there's a big nice like 170 inch four point sitting there and he didn't get buggered off too hard and then i i was able to be in a fortunate position to help my buddy like get on this deer and he's an older bow hunter that's been doing it for years he's in his 70s actually um and he's a really nice guy and he loves spending this time outside and i just want nothing to do but to help him 
get close to this mule deer because he hasn't killed one for a long time. And I think the last one he killed was like the fourth the state record typical number four on the list, like a 193. Oh, wow. Uh, and, but he hasn't killed one for like seven years. So, so I'm like, let's get him close to this thing. And we got him to uh, get into position about seven yards three times on this buck. <laughs> and this was crazy because he finally got a shot off on him and he hit the deer because he kind of limped off a little bit and he shot at him bedded at 60 yards after we, this is the third stock. And we saw a little bit of blood there and then a little more blood and then some splatters. So we go tracking this deer and we literally track the thing for seven hours. And we go about a mile in one direction. It turns down to drops of blood and we're just scratching our head and we're looking every direction, following track, looking for blood, all this stuff. And it just sort of runs out, you know? Um, and then we sort of give up on it and then we go up the hill going back to his, uh, his camp and we're just shooting the shit. And about five minutes into our hike back, 10 minutes into our hike back, I see like a puddle of blood in the middle of like this open area on top of this plateau, completely far away from where we were tracking the blood in the first place. And I'm like, well, that's gotta be part of this deer. Right? So we come into some really good blood. And we find like a couple spots where this deer had been bedded where there was pools of blood and even like a little dugout hole in the pool of blood, like where an elbow was right there, right? Or a joint or something was dug in where this deer was bedded down. And I'm like, we're going to find this thing because there's just big pools of blood. And we never found this deer. And he said, he's like, I'm going to come back in with my dog the next day and see if I can pick up this blood trail and find a dead deer somewhere. And then I wasn't able to talk to him till after season because there was no um, reception up there. But he got back at me and he said that that deer was alive and it was absolutely fine. And he found it pretty close to where all those blood piles were. Um, and he also found his arrow that we shot at it. And it had been like all gnarled up from rocks. So what he thought happened is that he skipped it off the ground at a bedded deer and it nicked like his elbow. Um, and it didn't actually go through him. And it was just like kind of like a muscle bleed that was uh, sputtering a little bit. But it had us going for <laughs> for seven hours after this deer. And it just goes to show how tough they were because two days later that thing was up and feeding like nothing had happened. And it lost, a, you know, like a solid 7-Eleven cup full of blood. Um, and I, and it, that kind of blew me away. So that was the end of my season after all that stuff had happened. Oh, man. Um Gosh, that's uh, what what a good job tracking there for a long time, staying on that blood. That's it's kind of a helpless feeling when you when that deer goes farther than you know two hundred yards or three hundred yards. You're thinking, oh no, I hope he's hit bad enough where I catch up to him, you know. And it, right. it's right. so tough to replay the events of you know, and, <clears throat> and um, I you know, it's like when you hit a deer, it's really about paying attention to the details. And some of these deer that even that you hit really well don't start bleeding till they get 70, 80, 100 yards off. Like it takes a right. while to fill up the cavity. Maybe you yep. only have an entrance wound. Maybe it's a high entrance wound. But right. anytime you hit a deer, it, it's always like being hyper vigilant of paying attention to all the details. Like uh, 
Uh, where was I standing? Mark that spot. Where was he standing? Where did I see him walk through? Which sure. direction did I see him run? Where is the last place I saw him? And and I don't I don't always run over the hill to catch an eye on him, but sometimes if I'm in open terrain, I'll try to keep my eyes on him by side hilling over or climbing up or just over the ledge, just so I can get eyes on him again and 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 see him. And, and then I'm trying to pay attention to like where the blood spot is at, where I saw right. the arrow enter in. Is there an entrance? Is there an exit? Like paying attention to all these details because once that deer's gone and you don't have eyes on him anymore. Then it's trying to to unravel that blood trail, like that CSI investigation, and you get good right. at it over time. But but it is like paying attention to not only the blood, but paying attention to the tracks and what his track looks like, and right. um, and also using the modern day tools as well, using that on X to to make search areas or to to mark your track so you can see which direction the deer's headed. Um, and, and, and it's smart. It's really smart that what you said, where you get up on the hill and you try to look out in the distance as early as possible, because after us having looked for like four hours for this thing, and then we got up on that plateau, we, when we got to those two pools of blood that were fresh, I feel like if we had been looking out in the horizon, we would have spotted a deer bedded down and not spooked him because it was so fresh the blood we got to. But it's so hard because you're you, you get you got your head in the dirt for four hours. And you're looking for a speckle here and a speckle there, and you got to remind yourself or have a buddy look up and one person's looking down, and you kind of dual task what you're looking for, you know. And it, it's tricky to remember that you can't have eyes everywhere all at the same time, but you, and that's an instinct thing, like you said. You kind of got to feel what the right thing to do is at the right moment. Look for the blood on the ground, or kind of look out in the distance for some antlers bedded down, wounded. Yeah, yeah, and sometimes those, you know, it's sometimes those deer need another arrow and trying to recognize that in a situation and it's tough too cuz cuz um you guys on that blood trail, like the blood trail is your best best path to recovering that deer. The moment you start leaving the blood trail and start circling around and gritting around, it seems like your chances of recovering that deer go down drastically. But that blood trail will tell you where that deer's headed and where he's going and, and can True. almost catch up to him. You know, it's going to lead you to that deer if you can just keep on it. But, you know, a lot of times it dries up like it did in your guys' case, especially in dry, arid country in that sagebrush be really hard to track that deer you know and you guys did good keeping on them for seven hours but yeah eventually it it um it dries up but paying attention to all those details and it's um uh you know to recover that deer and a lot of times deer can be hard to find even on a good hit like finding that first drop of blood is so important you know and and a lot of times it's not where you shot that animal you know it's 50 60 70 yards down the track and so if you don't know even which direction that deer went in um you know you you definitely uh tasked with a a tough challenge of trying to get on that blood trail uh, but it's tricky. I mean, the best is just to put a perfect shot, you know, double lung them, and it sprays blood out both sides and an easy one to follow. Uh, but it just doesn't happen that way every time. Yeah, well, that's what we all hope for. Um, and then you try to do the best you can to honor the animal for as long as you can. And I think we did that and gave it as much time as possible. And I was really happy in the end that that deer was up and feeding and just fine. You know, uh, it's even worse when you know he's going to go down and 
you can't find them or you, you don't have enough time or the rain comes and it gets dark or some other element takes you out. But uh, it's good that that deer survived. <laughs> oh, that's best case scenario. That's what you're yeah. hoping for, for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is, is that it is, you know, uh, uh, just uh, uh, skimmed him on his elbow or like, gosh, I Colorado this year, I slid one high and it actually slid down the offside of his body so didn't enter in him it just slid down along his side and so it, it it left him a scar there that i'm sure he still has but i found that deer the next morning and he was fine and feeding and you know it was like all right well i i, I know he's gonna live now you know so um sure and that's um you know it it definitely helps like you just don't want to leave an animal wounded out there or know that an animal's lying out there dead and you can't find him just kills me it right. can ruin your whole season you know and so um Hey, is, Brian, are you planning on going to uh, anywhere in January, like the Arizona hunt or uh, New Mexico or anything like that? Oh, I didn't draw a New Mexico tag, but I would like to get down to the desert down there um, in January. I haven't uh, made up my mind yet whether I'm going to be able to get the time to go down there, but – uh, mm-hmm. more than likely I will get down there to the, to the desert. I love it, man. You've got really good at hunting that desert country. Yeah. I mean, I, I love it down there. I've taken a few bucks out of that, the face of the moon type desert closer to Mexico. Um, and I, I'd really like to go this year, but I, I don't know if it's going to happen with the new baby, but there's also a whole lot of developments happening with those over the counter tags in Arizona as many resources are drying up for over-the-counter tags, and they're proposing a number of different things down there because I think a lot of the residents are complaining that there's too many non-resident hunters coming down there for that. Um, and it's a major revenue source for Arizona because it, it's like 500 bucks per a pop per hunter that comes down with license and tag fees to do that. Um, and it's really kind of interesting because they proposed it to their fishing game and they're trying to get, you know, less tags allotted and make it more of a draw system. And then you look at the numbers and there's really only like 10 percent of the hunters that hunt that are non-residents. Uh, if you look at some of the stats, because I've got a, another buddy that follows it pretty closely um, and he's been after this one buck for a while down there. And it, it's kind of we were after him last year together, this really big buck. He says he's over 220. Um and he's been he's drawn back on him a couple times and was never really able to to get a shot off on him. And that deer's been eluding him for like four or five years. And it's kind of funny because I took a picture of a deer that was younger that had this drop time um, six years ago. And I sent him the picture because it, it just kind of uh, made sense to me that this was the deer. And I said, is this your deer? And he's like, that's the deer. But he's younger there. He's, he's got to be three or four years old there. So I'm like, so how old is that deer now? He's probably got to be eight, nine or 10 or something. He's like, yeah, it's probably eight, nine or 10. Um, and he's going to go down there and try to get after him one last year. Cause he thinks he's, you know, if he's there, we'll see if he's still there, but this deer goes all over the place. I think he, uh, summers in one state and then comes over to Arizona for the rut. And then is really tricky and has been able to live through all these rifle seasons and kind of only shows up during that rut hunt. And a lot of those old timers that, that live down in those deserts, like they'll tell you that the rut is a whole different thing. Like th- these deer don't even show up until the, that one week of rut. And they're off in some other spot where nobody sees them for rifle season. <laughs> and they're able to get that big. And it's kind of wild. And that I hope that opportunity uh, exists for us in the future because it's it's really fun way to hone your skills and to hunt mature bucks uh, on a regular basis where – I mean, we can't even get a rut tag in Oregon, but after burning 15 points, you know what I mean? 
Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, it's a it's a great opportunity, and I know for years Arizona was trying to promote that hunt to bring in out of state hunters. Right. Um, and I I did see that they were proposing uh, some new regulations in those units, but it it doesn't you know um, like talking to the biologists in in Unit G of Wyoming, like he loves bow hunters because their success rate's so low. So right. therefore, you can bring more hunters into an area. And and not have the high harvest of say rifle season or something of that nature. And so sure. I think it's a great opportunity for us bow hunters. And it's it's really challenging down there to to kill a good deer. And and also, you know, I feel even with the influx of guys down there, like uh, I've been hunting it for maybe eight ten years now. You know, and I've definitely seen more guys showing up there. But I can just still find my own hunt. I can still find my own experience, my own opportunity. It seems like there's still good numbers of deer down there, and it's low densities in the desert. But it's still I can just I can find deer down there and have this quality experience. And I don't kill one every year down there, uh, but I sure love going down. It's a great time of year. I love the desert down there, spending time down there. Um, so so I'm with you. I hope it continues, and it. It's tough, our mindset as hunters, too, when you live in Arizona and you're a resident there and you keep seeing out-of-state tags, uh, out-of-state plates, like, like I get it. You feel like there's there's more pressure in your in your spot or in your state or in this January hunt, but I just still think there's opportunity for everybody out there, and, and um, you know, I definitely uh, try to have a good attitude. Well, you know, I'm one of these out-of-state hunters that travels to these different states and hunts so uh when i see guys that are out of state you know in my home state of montana you know it's like uh i i I definitely try not to have that attitude you know or i don't have that attitude as um you know we're all we're all u.s citizens and there's all these opportunities in different states and plus these non-residents they help pay the bill for the residents you know a resident tag is 20 30 dollars where like you said a non-resident you know 450 dollars with your hunting license so you know that's a lot of money that that's generated uh, that really helps the species down there and the habitat down there and the management. You know to be able to keep those those people in position. So it's necessary to have out of state hunters that that help right. supplement that that revenue for the state. And and the the success rates are so low with the bow and arrow down there that um, I just don't feel like it's getting to be a problem yet. So I'm with you. I hope they continue to have that hunt down there and. And uh, we continue to have that opportunity. And as it's really tough to harvest a deer, uh, it's a great challenge down there. And and uh, I know you love it like I do. And, uh, man, you've got really good at hunting that desert terrain. I, I'm constantly seeing you on good bucks down there. That that 220 has to be wild. Like just to have the opportunity to chase a deer like that with your bow in your hands is really special, isn't it? I mean, I sure think so. When you can hunt a deer of that caliber um, on a public land tag that's over the counter, you know, like some of those guys do on the Wasatch front that work really hard on that late season, you know, and they'll tell you how that's like the toughest hunt there is, but they're still pulling out bucks that are 220, 230, you know. So, like, to think to have an opportunity if you work hard enough at something on a caliber buck that that one person might, spend $50,000 on an auction tag for or wait 22 years to draw an Arizona strip tag to maybe have an opportunity on something. It's like, I feel like how could you not be pursuing that 
with everything you got. <laughs> you know <laughs> what I mean? Because it's there for you and it's just that close. <laughs> oh, that's so true. Well, and there's, um, you know, there's giant boxing units down there. There's also places with really good high populations with uh, a lot of opportunity where you might not catch one of those giant next level deer like that, but you're going to get chances and you're going to get stocks. And uh, uh, the key to becoming a, a good bow hunter is that experience, like uh, getting those chances, those opportunities uh, to glass up deer, to, to make calculated stocks, to make mistakes, to get shots. Like that's really yeah. important to the development of a bow hunter. And so um, there's, there's just a, a wide variety of opportunities down there. So, uh, yeah, I'll have to pay close attention here to what's going on down there um, with the regulations and see what they do this season. But, yeah, the the more and more we talk about it, how can I not go down there, Michael? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it, you got to get it while you can, and it might be gone in another two, three years. Hopefully not. Um, and, you know, it also just makes you a much better hunter because you get to be around those mature bucks that only show up for two weeks out of the season and, the, and, the, and, and get used to their personalities because I was talking about – the personalities earlier and you know here i am in oregon hunting early archery and i don't think i saw a buck that was over five or six years old but maybe that seven-year-old buck that was huge didn't show up at all during uh daylight hours but that buck if i'm in arizona is showing up because he's rutting so you get a chance to to learn the behaviors of these next level deer that have evaded all rifle seasons early archery all these different things and they're there because they have to breed because it's in their DNA and you're learning about this buck. And I know what this buck's track looks like the 220 buck. Cause he's got a hook on the front left uh, hoof and in your, and you're like, well, so he's coming in this way this day, but going out that way yesterday and he's over here uh, right now. And I've only ever seen him with one or two does. And you put it all together and you're like, well, that's a smart ass deer. And that's why he's 220 because he's not running with 20 of them. So everybody in the, the landscape can see him. He's just running with one or two and, he, and he'll, he'll break off if it gets too dangerous and he's doing smart stuff. And it's like, man, you, that, when you start chasing something like that, it gets start, starts getting kind of personal and you learn a lot about animals and their behaviors. Oh, you sure do. Uh, yeah, their knowledge grows exponentially, especially like every year they grow older and avoid those rifle seasons, like you're saying, or those bow seasons. They just they hone their instincts and they get to be a super wily critter, almost like a different species, you know. And oh yeah. And and I think you know the key to becoming a good bow hunter is like uh, you know, I always say like hunting different species and hunting different habitat and and different seasons, and so. To be able to chase mule deer early in a, in one habitat, and to to be able to chase a mid season in another, and then late season in another habitat, uh, it really furthers our development as bow hunters. And so that desert desert terrain down there, and, and hunting during the rut, uh, we get to learn like a like a whole new time frame and a whole new habitat how these the these deer react. And and they say it's you know it's a 1500 miles from my house you know the, those deer definitely have different behaviors and and uh do different like uh the um the characteristics are still the same and mule deer are still mule deer but they definitely act different in different habitats and there's there's just nothing more exciting than hunting that rut too 
uh, hunting that rut is a special experience, and to hunt it with a bow and arrow, uh, whole different game. Oh, it's just one of the funnest things on planet Earth. I just oh, love sure chasing is. them during the rut, and um, you know, I'm fortunate. I, I get to hunt a couple different rut hunts, and um, I, I really hold those hunts in high regard. It's uh, they're they're just so exciting and thrilling with a bow, and it's like an experience. It's like guys that that hunt elk during the rut and during the bugle like that's a special time to be able to hunt elk hunting mule deer during the rut uh you know during these time frames november december january it's it, so it's rare just amazing yeah it is yeah. man it's just wild it's uh it's something that everybody has to experience once in their life i think agreed agreed mm. well michael uh Dude, you're just the best. Uh, these in-depth conversations um, are just crazy cool. I, I'm so glad. Like we left off the last conversation, and I felt like we could have talked for uh, hours more. <laughs> and I think the same thing today. Like uh, you, you're just um, uh, you're a really intelligent bow hunter that's playing the chess game. And so uh, I just can't tell you how much I appreciate these conversations. I agree with you. I love checking in with you and every season that goes by, it's a little more fuel for the conversation, which is great. And we pick up more skills. Um, so yeah, let, let's keep it going. And, and it's not too many people where, where I listen to their podcast and I'm like, well, I know exactly what he means with that. I know exactly what he means with that. I'm like, Oh, that's something new that I, that I'll take into consideration. So I love being able to share and, and have this community where we can do this with one another as bow hunters, because Man, if you're just getting into the game and you want to learn, like just stay glued to Eastman's Elevated, and you will be you will make light years of improvement just by listening to things on this podcast. I feel like from Brian and all his knowledge and the great people that he has on this podcast. Oh, thank you, sir. That's a heck of a compliment. Yeah. Let's keep it's in the touch. Truth. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Thanks, bud. Thank you. All right, guys, that's a wrap. Again, thanks to Michael for being on the podcast. We did an early morning before his kids got up. I know he was hiding in the garage to record the podcast, but I just um, I really appreciate these guests taking the time and, and coming on the podcast, and they share all this insight that helps make them successful. And, and this insight has taken them years to acquire this knowledge and this information. And uh, to, to be able to come on the podcast and have in-depth conversations with me and, and not hold back and share these secrets that, that uh, help them be consistently successful, that's a game changer. It shortens the learning curve for everybody else out there, and me included. I I learn from from... Every podcast I do, every guest I have on, I learned something. And uh, no different today having Michael Alba on. So uh, if you see him on social media, make sure that you uh, let him know that you liked him on the podcast. And uh, with that, thanks to Everly Stock. Thanks to Matthews. Uh, making great packs. Making great bows. Um, super pumped about the um, 2022 season here coming up. And um, putting those things to good use. So... I've uh, been working with that bow a bunch and um, getting in my miles. Uh, today's going to be a little brutal. It's below zero and snowing like crazy, but uh, going to lace up my shoes and get out there and get a workout in. Um, so, yeah, it's um, it, it's officially the off season. So um, just trying to figure out where I'm going to go and um, where these adventures are going to take me. It's a it's a fun process and and you know right now is the time to improve and so uh, just really working with this bow, uh, really working on physical fitness and then my mental edge, uh, just be able to push my limits this year in, in 2022. So super excited. 
And uh, I know you guys are excited. That's the reason you're listening to this podcast. You know, you guys are diehard hunters uh, that enjoy uh, thinking about it and uh, working on it and improving yourself. And, uh, man, it's what it's all about. So um, appreciate you guys. I appreciate the support. And uh, with that, I'll check in with you next week.